Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. John 2, verses 1 through 11. It reads, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does, th- what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone, six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing twenty or thirty gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the headmaster called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Before we get started this morning, I, I want to implore something on your behalf. Todd mentioned a moment ago that it is the elders' intent to reintroduce in-person Bible classes for our children in March. We originally intended to do that in December, but due to various circumstances, ended up having to postpone that, in large part to, due to uh, the, the increasing uh, levels of, of positive cases in this pandemic. In order for us to be able to relaunch in-person children's Bible classes, we need a surplus of teachers. We, we had teachers to cover one class each week in the winter quarter, but not enough to offer Sunday morning and Wednesday night, and not enough to have backups for those who get ill or just need to quarantine. So we need a surplus of teachers. Now, we're not asking you to step outside of your comfort zone. If you're not comfortable being in the the presence of children, and that might not have anything to do with the pandemic, to be fair. If you're not comfortable being in that setting, we understand. But I know as a parent here that there's a lot of parents who are concerned about the fact that it's been 44 weeks since kids have had an in-person Bible class, and by the time we get to March, we'll have almost hit one year of no in-person Bible classes. So we're imploring you to consider volunteering if you're comfortable with that environment, to consider volunteering to be a Bible class teacher starting in March, or even to be a backup in case somebody has to take a leave for a little while. Our children, they need these Bible classes to come back. The church isn't the place to be the primary source of spiritual education for children. That's the home. And Lord willing, you and I as a parent are doing that. But this is a wonderful supplement, a needed supplement to that spiritual education. So we implore you to consider volunteering to teach one of our classes. The classes are going to be uh, condensed. Uh, We may not have classes for every grade level as we have had in the past. Todd and our deacons over education have done a great job of putting together a plan to help provide a clean and safe environment for these children. 
If you need to know more about that, feel free to reach out to Todd or Alan Carlisle or even go read on our website. I believe it's posted on the the, the COVID-19 page. Is that right, Pam? The COVID-19 page. We even have the information about how we're going to keep those classrooms clean. But please consider doing that so these kids can come back to class. And with that, I'll transition into our, our time of study today. As we've noted the past two weeks, we are in this series called Likewise. It's a study of the life of Jesus. And the premise behind this study is that Scripture calls on us to go and do likewise, and the ultimate one that we are to go and do like is Jesus. So our objective is trying to examine the life of Jesus to see in what ways we need to emulate Him as we go and do. Last week we examined the child Jesus, that moment when he was 12 years old and, and he stayed at the temple as his parents made the trip home. And we examined what we could learn from a child about going and doing. And this morning I want us to consider the fact that throughout the Gospels, Jesus, Jesus is frequently said to be moved with compassion. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 41, Mark says that when a leper knelt before Jesus and said, if you are willing, you can make me clean, Jesus was moved with compassion and as a result stretched out his hand and touched the man and said, I am willing, be cleansed. In Matthew chapter 9 and verse 36, we're told that when Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Immediately before feeding the 5,000, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 14 and verse 14 that he was moved with compassion for the great multitude and healed their sick. Matthew chapter 20 and verse 34 records a time when Jesus met two blind men in Jericho. They cried out for him to have mercy on them, and he had compassion, touched their eyes, and immediately they received sight. And then Luke describes in Luke chapter 7 and verse 13 how on one occasion Jesus encountered a funeral procession, a funeral procession for a widow's only child. And when Jesus saw that widow, he had compassion on her and said, do not weep. And the next thing you know, her son was brought back to life. You see, you can go through the Gospels and you can see all these moments where Jesus was moved with compassion. But what is compassion? I googled it. And if you Google a word, it will give you Google's definition. And Google's definition of compassion is a sympathetic pity and concern for the sufferings or misfortunes of others. Pity. Is that really all compassion is? Pity? 
You see, when I look at these incidents in the life of Jesus, when he's moved with compassion, what stands out to me isn't just that he felt sorry for somebody, isn't just that he was sympathetic towards somebody, but that he took action to alleviate their suffering in some fashion. And so as I examined definitions, I came across the one at dictionary.com, which refers to compassion as a feeling of deep sympathy and sorrow for another who is stricken by misfortune, accompanied by a strong desire to alleviate the suffering. You see, compassion isn't just a feeling. Compassion is an action. Compassion is your willingness not only to be concerned about what somebody's going through, but to do something about it. That's what Jesus did every time. He was moved with compassion. He acted. He did. He alleviated the suffering. You see, compassion matters because unless we're willing to be moved with compassion, then we're likely never going to be willing to go and do. So this morning, as we think about Jesus' compassion, I want us to look at a story that never uses the word compassion. I want us to look at a story, though, that provides one of the best demonstrations of compassion, in my opinion. And it's a story that often gets overlooked as being beneficial for our lives today because we get so distracted by the elements of the story that we fail to see its application. So today we're going to examine Jesus' first miracle, the miracle in which he changed water into wine. And we're going to see what we can learn about going and doing from that wedding in Cana. So if you've got your Bibles, hopefully you followed along with our scripture reading, but turn to John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. You'll notice right off the bat that Jesus goes to a wedding. And here's what we're going to learn initially from this story. We're going to learn that going and doing likewise means involving yourself in the lives of people. You see, in these first two verses of John chapter 2, we're told that there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and we're told that Jesus was invited to the wedding. Jesus was invited to a wedding. Now, I don't know about you, but this story is fascinating to me. Because we have all of these incidents in the life of Jesus where he, he goes to a religious festival in Jerusalem or he goes to this town or that town so he can teach and preach. But we don't have many stories where Jesus is going to a social event like a wedding. It's almost too normal. It's, it's almost too comfortable. That's not the Jesus we're used to. We're, we're more comfortable hearing about the Jesus who is out there walking on water or the Jesus who is standing on the hillside preaching the Sermon on the Mount. We're more comfortable with the miracle worker and the great teacher, not the invitee to the wedding. And yet Jesus is here doing one of the most normal, ordinary activities of life. Do you think he got to the wedding and like you and I do sometimes, criticize the one officiating? I criticize even when I'm officiating. Do you think he sat there and 
talked about how bored he was during the ceremony? Do you think he commented on how beautiful the bride was? There's something you do need to know about these kind of weddings. They were typically week-long celebrations. This wasn't just your few hours on a Saturday afternoon. This was an entire week of celebration. And Jesus was a participant in the celebration. Don't miss the truth that Jesus chose to attend this wedding. It wasn't a requirement of his ministry. It wasn't an expectation of the Messiah. Jesus chose to go to this wedding. He took the time to enjoy a feast, to visit with friends and family, to honor a bride and a groom, to celebrate their union at a wedding. And the interesting thing about this wedding is who is there. We're specifically told that Jesus, his mother, and some of his disciples all were at this wedding. That seems to indicate that at least for Jesus and his mother, this wedding was for a relative or a close family friend. In fact, the uh, archaeological remains of the city of Cana are only about four miles from Nazareth. So it's quite likely that this is somebody Joseph and Mary knew well, and somebody that invited that, their family to come to this wedding. And Jesus chose to be there. In fact, it's quite possible that Mary had some responsibility at the wedding. She might have even been one of the individuals responsible for the catering of this celebration, which would explain her concern over the shortage of supplies that we'll talk about in just a moment. Now, at this point, you're probably wondering, what does this have to do with compassion? What does this have to do with the theme that we have of go and do? What does this have to do with anything? The thing that stands out to me is that it was a deliberate choice of Jesus to be at this wedding. Think about the point in his career he's at. He's already been baptized. He's already endured the temptation. He's ready to start his ministry. Weren't there better things for him to be doing? Weren't there more important places for him to go? Weren't there more important people for him to interact with? But Jesus chose to be here. It shows that he was intentional about involving himself in the lives of people. See, Jesus was at this wedding, and if he hadn't been there, he couldn't resolve the dilemma that's going to present itself. But because he was willing to involve himself in this family's life, he's able to help them in a time of crisis. Going and doing means that we have to involve ourselves in people's lives, just like Jesus is doing here when he chooses to be at this wedding. And it makes me think about the parable of the sheep and the goats. Honestly, if I was to rank how many times I use par- certain parables in my sermons, this would be one of the top three. 
But if you recall the parable of the sheep and the goats, Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46, it's a parable about serving people. And you have this contrast set between sheep and goats. And you have this situation where the sheep are feeding the hungry and giving water to the thirsty and, and clothing the naked and, and visiting the sick, visiting the imprisoned, and so on. What I find interesting when I revisit that parable is that the difference between the sheep and the goats is not so much what they do, but what they see. It's because the sheep, they recognize that someone is in need. The goats never do. The sheep see the hungry. The sheep see the thirsty. The sheep see the strangers, the, the, the naked, the, the uh, imprisoned, and the sick. The sheep realize and recognize that there is a need. And I think it's an indicator that the sheep have invested, the sheep have involved themselves in someone's life to the degree that they can recognize when that need arises. When I look at the wedding at Cana and see Jesus choose to be there, and I reflect on the parable of the sheep and the goats and realize that the only way the sheep know that there are hungry people, that there are naked people, that there are sick people, is because they've involved themselves in those people's lives. We have this grand theme, go and do, in 2021. And what that means is that you're going to have to invest in some people. You're going to have to involve yourself in some people's lives so that you know what you can do for them. Because Jesus involved himself in this couple's life, he was able to go and do something for them. But it all starts with the choice of involvement. But that's not all it means to go and do likewise. As we continue through the story of the wedding at Cana, we learn that going and doing likewise also means allowing interruptions from people. During the festivities at this wedding, something happens. In John chapter 2 and verse 3, we're told that the wine ran out, and Jesus' mother, in a roundabout way, asked Jesus to do something about it. I want you to notice Jesus' response to his mother in verse 4. He simply says, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, such a statement sounds disrespectful and self-absorbed to us, doesn't it? But we know that Jesus never sinned, and that disrespect and self-absorption would be sinful. So if Jesus never sinned, then we can conclude that there's something more to what he's saying here than our culturally influenced ears here. It's interesting in John's Gospel how often a reference is made to Jesus' time or Jesus' hour. In fact, this is the first of nine references to Jesus' hour or Jesus' time. The first three references to his hour are chapter 2, verse 4, chapter 7, verse 30, and chapter 8, verse 20. And they all occur prior to his triumphal entry. And they all indicate that his hour had not yet come. 
But then the last six references to Jesus' hour or Jesus' time, which start with chapter 12, verse 23, include chapter 12, verse 27, with two references. Then there's chapter 13, verse 1, chapter 16, verse 32, and chapter 17, verse 1. The last six references to Jesus' time all indicate that his time had come, had arrived, and they all take place after the triumphal entry. They all take place during the last week of his life. You see, ultimately when Jesus said, my hour has not yet come, he was communicating a couple of things. First, he was indicating that he was acting in accordance with God's timetable. Because as one author pointed out, the hour toward which everything moved is the hour of Jesus' glorification, which takes place through his death, resurrection, and exaltation. In other words, the hour that Jesus is talking about all these times, or that John is talking about on all these occasions, is the hour of Jesus' death, which accomplishes the will of God. And he's saying here at the wedding of Cana, when his mother seeks his involvement in this crisis, he's saying, my time is in accordance with God's time. He's saying that he is surrendered to God's schedule. But the second thing he's communicating when he said, my hour has not yet come, is that he didn't think it was time for him to get involved in a, situ- in a situation that could complicate his greater mission. You see, as soon as Jesus starts performing miracles, the clock starts ticking. As soon as he starts performing miracles, the end is coming. He's going to gain attention from people, and that includes the religious leaders who are going to confront him, who are going to question him, who are going to challenge him, who are going to dismiss him. So Jesus knows that as soon as he does that first miracle, there's no going back. It's so fascinating to me here. Jesus didn't necessarily go to this wedding for the purpose of revealing himself to be the Messiah. That wasn't necessarily his objective, though, in fairness, he is the Son of God, so he may have had a grand plan that we can't see in the text of Scripture. But it's interesting to me because this is a moment where he's at a wedding and he's being interrupted. What his plans were are being altered by somebody else, in this case, his own mother. And this isn't the only time he allowed an interruption. We can read in Mark chapter 5 about an occasion where he was following a synagogue ruler back to his house. The synagogue ruler's name was Jairus. His daughter was very ill, and Jairus had come to Jesus and begged Jesus to come and heal his daughter. And so Jesus is going with Jairus back to his house when all of a sudden he felt power leave him because there was this woman with this hemorrhaging problem 
who pushed her way through the crowd somehow, some way, made it to Jesus because she believed that if she could just touch his, his uh, garment, she could be healed. And now all of a sudden, he's supposed to be going to Jairus' house, but now he stopped. And he wants to find out who just touched him. And he wants to speak to her. He's interrupted with another miracle that he didn't intend to necessarily perform that day. Jesus permitted interruptions, particularly when those interruptions would benefit somebody. You can look through Jesus' life. He never performed miracles on demand. If anybody asked him to perform a sign, he always declined. But if somebody asked for his help, he always gave it. He allowed his life to be interrupted. And right here at the wedding at Cana, he didn't necessarily plan to initiate his miraculous ministry But that's what happened because he allowed his mother to interrupt his plans. Sometimes the reason we fail to go and do has nothing to do with our desire. And it has nothing to do with our resources. Sometimes the reason we fail to go and do is simply because we're too busy. Sometimes the reason we fail to go and do is because we've got other things on the agenda. We've got different plans. We've got a schedule to keep. You ever been driving down the road when you see somebody stranded and you know they could use some help, but man, you've got to make that appointment. You ever hear about somebody who's going through a really hard time and you'd love to give up a few hours of your day to to go and, and talk with them or to go have lunch with them or to just go encourage them. But man, there's too many things you gotta get done at home. Have you ever ignored helping someone because it just wouldn't fit into your schedule? You see, if we're going to go and do like Jesus, that means that we're going to have to allow occasional interruptions. And when we do that, what we're focused on is not so much denying our own needs, but seizing opportunities as they present themselves. I want to share with you three passages from the New Testament that talk about the usefulness and the expectancy of, of utilizing opportunities. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10, Paul said, As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 and 16, Paul said, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. And then finally, Colossians chapter 4 and verse 5. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders outsiders make the most of every opportunity what i'm trying to communicate as we look at the wedding at cana what i'm trying to convey as we consider the fact that jesus said my hour has not yet come but he's going to go on and do something 
based on his mother's request, what I'm trying to get across to us is that sometimes we have to allow interruptions so that we can seize opportunities. And the reason we have to do that is because the one we're supposed to emulate did that. Going and doing likewise means allowing interruptions from people. And going and doing likewise means caring about the needs and the concerns of people. You see, throughout Jesus' ministry, he performed many miracles. Some of those miracles provided life-saving remedies to incurable diseases. Some of those miracles rescued people from the crippling bondage of demon possession. Some of those miracles would bring loved ones back from the dead. But this miracle in John chapter 2, at this wedding, do you know what it's going to accomplish? It's simply going to spare the hosts of the wedding the embarrassment of running out of wine. That's, that's it. In that culture, when you had these week-long uh, wedding feasts, it was embarrassing, shameful even, to not have enough supplies to feed the audience. There, there is even evidence that the bride's side of the family, now mind you, in that day and age, the groom paid for the whole wedding, not the bride. And personally, I think we need to bring that back now that I've got two daughters. <laughs> but the groom's side of the family was responsible for funding the entire wedding celebration. And there is evidence that the bride side of the family could sue the groom side of the family if they ran out of stuff. Now, that's a great way to kick off a, a marriage, isn't it? The bride's family suing the groom's family because they ran out of something to eat. So the only thing that is at stake here if Jesus doesn't come through is a social faux pas is a little bit of embarrassment in the community. When you rank this in comparison to all the other miracles Jesus will perform, this is probably the lowest of importance. One author said it this way, as emergencies go, this one falls well down the list. It caused embarrassment to be sure, but need a Messiah who had come to heal the sick and liberate the captives? Does it really need a Messiah to deal with it? It's interesting to me that after Jesus' mother presented the dilemma of insufficient wine to Jesus, that he never actually agreed to help. Did you notice that? He never said, sure, Mom, I've got this. Listen, Mary is this tremendous mother for many reasons, but she pulls a mother trick here. She tells you what's needed, and walks away. But here's what I think is happening with Mary. Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. Then the next thing you know, Mary turns to the servants in verse 5 and says, do whatever he tells you. Her reaction to Jesus' non-committal response indicates that not only did she know Jesus could do something about this situation. 
but that he would do something about this situation. And it's the latter that interests me the most. This is the Son of God who would one day resolve mankind's greatest need, the need for salvation. And here's his mother asking him to reveal himself to the world by resolving an insignificant issue that at worst would embarrass a couple. And she doesn't even wait for him to agree to help. I think because she knows that he will. I think she knows that he cares about people to the point that he's willing to help them even with the smallest, most minute problems. You see, I started contemplating this as I studied the wedding at Cana. I started realizing that disciples have a tendency to be less concerned about other people than Jesus was. It was the disciples that rebuked parents uh, for bringing their children to him in Matthew, excuse me, in Luke chapter 18 and verse 15. Assumedly, they rebuked those parents because they viewed this as an activity that was beneath Jesus. And yet he ended up rebuking them and saying, let the little children come to me. It was the disciples that begged Jesus to send away a Canaanite woman who was requesting help for her demon-possessed child simply because she was annoying them. Matthew chapter 15, verse 23. It was the disciples that encouraged Jesus to send away that 5,000-plus member crowd when it got late in the day simply because they didn't want to be responsible for feeding all those people. In Mark chapter 6, verse 36. It was always the disciples that tried to send people away. It was always the disciples who failed to see people's needs with compassion. Maybe that's why when Jesus was at the end of his life and he knew he was in one of his last moments to teach as Stan read to us a moment ago from John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. Jesus, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In other words, Jesus instructed his disciples to love other people like he loved other people. He wants his disciples to possess the same level of compassion for others that he had throughout his life. And so Paul instructs us in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12 to clothe ourselves with compassion as God's chosen people. Clothe yourselves with compassion, he says, as God's chosen people. Two things to think about with that passage. The first is the language of clothing. See, what you wear is a choice. You choose what you put on. It isn't something that... Compassion is here described as something you have to choose to wear. Therefore, it isn't something that everyone will automatically possess. It's something they're going to have to choose to dress themselves in. Are you choosing to be compassionate? 
And Colossians 3.12 says to clothe yourselves with compassion as God's chosen people. That last phrase stands out to me because it indicates that compassion is an identifier of our relationship to God. Why are we to be compassionate? Because we are God's chosen people who are loved by Him. Thus, our display of compassion is one way in which we associate ourselves with God because He is the originator of compassion. And the way the world is going to know that we are disciples is by our love demonstrated through our compassion. So if we're going to go and do like Jesus, that means we're going to have to care about people and we're going to have to care about where they hurt and and what they're struggling with even when it seems so insignificant. This would have been a really easy situation for Jesus to say, "I, I don't have time for this. This doesn't matter. This isn't a salvation issue. This isn't going to rescue someone's life from the grave or from a demon. Why should I bother with an issue about wine running out? But he didn't do that. He cared enough to do something about something that was minor because he cares about people. And one final thought. Going and doing likewise means using every situation to direct people to God. You see, in this story of the wedding at Cana, as Jesus performs his first miracle, we need to notice how John wraps up the story. Because if you look there at verse 11, John specifically says this is the first miracle. This is the first sign that Jesus did. And he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. John preferred the term sign, which he used 17 times, to the word miracle, which he never used. He applied this word not just to the water-to-wine miracle, but also the healing of a nobleman's son in John chapter 4, the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6, and the healing of a man born blind in chapter 9. As one author said, John's preference for the word sign is not accidental, for he clearly thinks that these acts are like road signs pointing us in the proper direction. They direct those who experience the wonder, either firsthand or through John's retelling of it, toward Jesus. And in the case of the wedding at Cana, Jesus manifested His glory, demonstrating that God was indeed with Him. In other words, the the sign of turning the water into wine, demonstrated that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And that's why his newly acquired followers from chapter 1, which would include Peter, Andrew, Philip, Nathaniel, and possibly John, that's why they believed in him. Even though Jesus may have been concerned about the people at the wedding and the embarrassment this wine issue may have caused them, even though he helped to alleviate that, 
he also knew the benefit of this miracle would be to confirm the faith of these guys who just started following him. The point is that what Jesus was doing here was also intended to direct people to himself, to show people who he is, to point people to God in the flesh. You see, everything we do is intended to point toward Jesus. The tagline of our theme this year, our theme is go and do. The tagline is becoming the hands and feet of Jesus. We haven't really talked about that too much. But essentially what we are trying to achieve with our go and do initiatives is to operate in this world as representatives of Jesus. To go as his feet and share his good news of salvation. To serve as his hands and his feet by helping those who are in need and doing it in his name. That means that everything we do is for His glory. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31 must be the verse we live by. Whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Because even the Son of God did that. You see, going and doing likewise means using every situation to direct people to God. So I want to close with a humorous story I heard about a college professor who was meeting his new class on the first day of school. He stood before the students and gave a nice introduction and gave all his credentials. And then upon completing his monologue, he looked around the room and asked his students, if any of you think you are ignorant, stand up. None of the students stood up. He asked the same question again, if anyone thinks he or she is ignorant, please stand up. No one stood up. Upon the third time of asking that, One student in the back of the room stood up, and the professor said, so you think you are ignorant? And that student replied, no, I just didn't want you to feel alone. (laughs) That story is meant to be humorous, but I realized it conveys an important truth about compassion. Compassion is taking action to ensure that nobody ever feels alone. That's what Jesus did at the wedding at Cana when he resolved a very minor issue. And that's what you and I are expected to do every day as we clothe ourselves with compassion. President Teddy Roosevelt, to reference something that Ben likes to reference. President Teddy Roosevelt once said, People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. That's why compassion, even in the smallest of matters, matters. 
So this morning, we look at the wedding at Cana, not so that we can investigate whether or not wine was fermented or unfermented. That doesn't matter. We don't look at the wedding at Cana to determine whether or not Jesus is all for marriage because that's not the point. We look at the wedding at Cana because Jesus, in that moment, showed compassion in a way that we don't normally see it. He had compassion on an issue that was of insignificance, and he had compassion by being in the presence involved in these people's life, and he showed compassion by caring about their needs in that moment. He had compassion by allowing his plan, his schedule to be interrupted. And he had compassion because he was utilizing that situation to point people to an all-loving God. The question of the day then is this. Are we going to be like Jesus, known for our compassion? Because compassion has already been shown toward us when he went to the cross. This morning we offer the Lord's invitation. If you have any need today to write your life, to receive forgiveness for sin, to experience some compassion, then we invite you to come while together we stand and sing.